Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I am bringing you my conversation with a Broadway legend, director and choreographer Jeff Calhoun. Jeff's Broadway credits include Disney's Newsies, for which he received a Tony Award nomination for Best Director, Bonnie and Clyde, Jekyll and Hyde, Grey Gardens, Deaf West's Big River, which received a Tony Award nomination for Best Revival of a Musical, Brooklyn, Annie Get Your Gun, Grease, for which he received a Tony Award nomination for Best Choreography, Tommy Tune Tonight, and The Will Rogers Follies. On the West End, Jeff directed Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. National touring credits include 9 to 5 and Disney's High School Musical 1 and 2. Jeff is an associate artist at the Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C., and also serves on the board of directors for the Covenant House International, a nonprofit helping homeless youth. He recently directed and became an Emmy Award contender for A Night of Covenant House Stars on Amazon Prime. Listeners, Jeff Calhoun is without a doubt one of the most sought-after, influential directors of our time. This is exactly why I started the podcast, to give you, the listeners, a free resource for up-to-date information on everything you need to know about the business from the most successful people that are actually out there doing it. Now, Jeff's path to how he got to where he is is incredibly inspiring, and he talks about the importance of mentorship. Now, this is a common theme among podcast guests and also an important part of the podcast because not everyone is going to have the same path or idea or views, but what do all of these successful people have in common? Are there any themes? And definitely having a strong, helpful mentor is for sure one of them. When we talk about the audition room, Jeff has some great examples, like talking about one of Sutton Foster's first auditions for the ensemble of a national tour, and what made her stand out amongst the hundreds of other women that were there that day. And then we talk about Eden Espinosa's first audition for Brooklyn, the show that launched her career, and what she brought to that first appointment. Now, one of the many things I love about my conversation with Jeff is him stressing the importance of having a well-rounded view of every aspect of the industry and attributes much of his success to this idea. And I could go on and on, but I want you to hear it for yourself. So without further ado, my conversation with Broadway director and choreographer, Jeff Calhoun. I'm happy to be talking with you today and I'm happy to be catching up. And we met briefly through our mutual friend, Mel Johnson Jr. Oh, I know. I love Mel. Love Mel so much. He was my dressing roommate in uh, Paradise Lost, which uh, closed March 1st. I mean, how crazy is that? Wow, I thought it was like a lot longer than that. Yeah, it ran, I guess, for like... A little less than two months, but uh, yeah, it was short. But we, our plan was to take it, you know, that company, they tour their shows to like major markets, but kind of in between like Hamilton and Wicked, they'll put like a half week of Paradise Lost or they'll, so it's kind of like this interesting business model that they actually tour. That's like more of what they want to do instead of like having these long runs in New York, which is just interesting. Christian audiences, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the focus. But you came to our opening night, which was cool, and we got to meet briefly. And uh, I'm so happy to, you know, when I think when I think of people that I want to like interview and you know add to the library of the podcast, like you're a, a perfect person to talk to. So I'm so happy that you're sitting down and doing this with me. Well, I appreciate it, and you were great in that show. Actually, you're, you're you were really good. That's too kind. Yeah, no, both you and Mel sort of transcended. It was it was good. 
Thank you. Thank you. It was a uh, <laughs> hard show to do when you're taking, you know, thousands of pages in a thousand year old poem and condensing it to 90 minutes. And uh, but I love new things like that. I love new kind of interesting ideas. So it was fun. And, and you know, at the end of the day, when you're doing it with people like Mel and like a great cast and like people like Alison Frazier and Lula Bator, it's like just such a fun time. So oh, I forgot about Yeah, I love Alison. Oh, my God. She was our first. I don't remember her name. Mrs. Darby in High School Musical. Oh, cool. The, yeah. The first um, teacher in High School Musical for stage. Yeah. Oh, fun. So, you know, usually I start this off by, uh, you know, pre-COVID, I was talking to people about what they're up to now and, uh, you know, what projects are coming across their desk and stuff like that. But we are in an interesting time right now and like, you know, priorities are to just take care of ourselves and our friends. So I guess my question to you is like, what were you up to when everything came to a halt in March? And or like, what are what are you up to these days? Um, I know we spoke before hitting record about some stuff that uh, that you've been up to, which has been very cool with Covenant House. But well, as this all happened, um, I had a, uh, a really fun production of nine to five happening at the Savoy Hotel on the West End. It was just an exceptional experience working with Dolly and retooling that show to, to try to figure it out, to, to make it the best that it can be. And that was going like gangbusters. And of course, that just stopped dead in its tracks. And um, we had a production of uh, it's called Between the Lines, based on a Jody Picot uh, novel that we turned into a musical. And uh, that was to open its, its second stage in April. And that, of course, got stopped in its footsteps and a couple other projects. Uh, 95 was going to go to Australia. I had five productions that just came to a screeching halt. And the first few months, I'm sure you can, uh, you'll second this. It, there was sort of a novelty to it because we had no idea the duration. And so it was... I don't want to say it was fun because I actually got COVID and spent a week in the hospital. So that wasn't oh, fun. Uh, after that, it was still sort of novel. You thought, okay, some downtime and you don't feel like such a loser because everyone's has downtime. So there's no pressure on yourself to be doing more than you know you were doing. And uh, But now the reality is, the harsh reality is kind of sobering, isn't it? Because I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone knows anything truthfully about when theater is going to come back. Yeah, because it's so dependent on so many things other than the coronavirus too, um, uh, which we don't even have to get into on the podcast, but it's, you know, there's just so much, there's so much happening. But yeah, I, I, in the beginning, it was like, oh, it's just going to be closed for like, you know, theaters can be closed for a month or two. And I think people could wrap their brains around that. But, you know, once it starts going longer and longer and longer, it's just... Um, and not having a, an end in sight is just, it's something none of us have experienced before. It's just crazy. Except, you know, it's crazy. Yesterday I heard that there's a workshop of a new musical starting next week. And I'm thinking uh, virtually or in person. And apparently it's in person. Wow. I know. And I, I was going to research that today to figure out how are they doing that? And I think it's equity sanctioned. So I want to be optimistic and go, wow, that's kind of, that's exciting. But at the same time, I'm like, well, how are they doing that? <laughs> I want to do something like that. How, how does that happen? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I don't know if you listen to the, the, the New York Times daily podcast. They like did this whole thing, uh, this whole uh, story about the Godspell that's happening up in the Berkshires and just hearing about like the director talking and some of the actors speaking about just what the rehearsal room is like. 
totally like a dystopian, like different <laughs> process than, than has ever happened before. So I imagine that it's got to be this like very different experience. Hey, Robbie, speaking of the New York Times, I think we should take a moment and wish Mr. Brentley uh, a nice retirement. Absolutely. I think I, I heard celebration all over the city this morning when I opened the paper and read that. Yeah, I, I also think I heard that as well. Yes, happy retirement and, um, and uh, an interesting time to, to have this happen. So, Absolutely. But I think that goes part and parcel to what you're saying. I can only imagine he thought, well, wait, if this is as good a time as any. There's no live theater to cover. You know, I don't want to be reviewing virtual shows. So it makes sense, actually. And I think a lot of artistic directors, I think a lot of people that are thinking about retirement or moving on, they're taking advantage of this time to do that. Yeah, especially because it's also a very stressful time to be doing any of that. So be nice to be in that position. No, that's true. I was going to say it must be nice to be in that position where you can actually move on and retire. But as I'm saying that, I realize I don't want to ever retire or stop doing this. So that was insincere. I didn't mean yeah. I want to do this until, you know, the bit, I forget who said this a long time ago, but the business is going to leave me before I leave the business. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's, I think that's usually what happens, you know, I think so. So it's so cool about nine to five. So you were doing like a reworking of the production that had been done before or licensed. Like it was a new kind of reworked production. Well, it's sort of interesting because I've had a few opportunities to reinvent the show. Um, the, the production that, that people are licensing now was actually my first incarnation with the show. We did a national tour, I don't know when, but years ago. And then after that, we did a UK tour. And that was my second chance at the material. So I had a chance to make it better. And Dolly reworked some songs and Pat Resnick reworked on some of the book stuff. And it did make it better. Uh, but then we had an opportunity for the West End last season, and we thought we'd take advantage of that to give it one last stab and actually try to make it as good as it could be. I think we, I, we're all really, really happy, and we're assuming that the new licensing will, will be the actual production that was at the Savoy. Uh, we solved a lot of um, tricky moments in the show. We, we, we jettisoned all of the um, uh, fantasy sequences, and we got rid of those songs. And Dolly wrote a new song called Hey Boss that goes in that same spot. It seemed to be really working. The audiences were really receptive and it was it was um, very successful there. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Cool. We were talking briefly before I hit the record button about you doing some online programming, especially for the, the Covenant House specifically. How do you feel like that all, if at all, works i mean did you find like some sort of formula or or what was the way that you felt you know so much is online right now so many theaters are figuring out like how can we do a zoom play or or how can we create a gala evening fundraiser event um you know do you feel like it works and do you feel like people are going to keep doing it and you know all of that well that's a lot of questions um, <laughs> with is. a lot of separate answers but um I think I was told about the pro. I, okay, the best part about the downtime with COVID is it's, it's allowed me to spend more time with Covenant House, uh, which is the largest um, shelter 
at, um, for homeless youth, homeless and trafficked youth. We're in 31 cities and six countries, and I'm on the international board. And so every year I direct our annual gala. And this year it's when COVID happened. And this was still early, so we weren't really tired of the galas yet or the virtual thing. And I was in the I was actually in the hospital with COVID when um, Kevin Ryan, the president and CEO of Covenant House, texted me that we were going to do our gala virtually and would I be interested in directing it? And we had six weeks. We were going to air it in six weeks. And so we put this two-hour special together in two weeks. And at that point, I had only seen a few virtual attempts from you know people online. And I, I knew more what I didn't want it to look like than what I did want it to look like. It tended, a lot of the, the things I had seen, at least my um, awareness at the time was people found uh, a lot of stars, a lot of celebrities. I remember one would be Elton John was, I think in a driveway with a basketball, under a basketball hoop with his piano and the sound wasn't very good. And it didn't really tie into the mission of the money they were raising. And so it looked like a producer had a big Rolodex and got a lot of stars together, but nothing was contextualized as far as the messaging of why we were there. And so that's what I wanted to do with Covenant House. I really wanted to disguise what's ultimately a um, infomercial for Covenant House, but make it feel like an, a real entertainment. And so we had a really good time doing that. And uh, everyone reached out to all their contacts and we had Dolly Parton was generous enough to, to participate. And, once we had Dolly, uh, Audra McDonald, who's also on the board, Goddess uh, Meryl Streep and Diane Keaton, and then um, Rachel Brosnahan brought in people. And then we had Morgan Freeman. And all of a sudden, the stars and Martin Short came. And uh, it just snowballed. And it, it became something we could never have accomplished in person because we never could have gotten all those people to fly to New York to be in the show. And we had a wonderful writer, Linda Unger, who... Um, really helped contextualize all the performers. So it didn't seem like random arbitrary stars uh, just randomly singing. It all was tied into our mission at Covenant House. And we also had a lot of Broadway stars, you know, Laura Ostis and Jeremy Jordan and, um, well, uh, Ariana DeBose, who's about to come out in the West Side Story movie. She's playing Anita, which is very exciting working with Steven Spielberg. But anyway, it made, it, I was very proud of it. We raised $10 million. We had 5 million viewers. We were on Amazon Prime. And um, subsequent to that, it looks like I'm going to be working with uh, Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper on her True Colors benefit. And um, Kevin Hart is going to recreate the Jerry Lewis telethon in a way. And he's going to do two hours. So MDA reached out to me to see if I would do some programming after that that would continue sort of like um, overtime, sort of like Bill Maher does overtime. So we're going to do 22 hours of continual um, programming after Kevin's initial two hours. And so it's this little niche that sort of happened all because of COVID and the Covenant House experience. I'm sorry for long-winded answer. I just bored myself with that one. No, 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 you didn't. You didn't. And I love what you said in the beginning because it's, you know, what's the difference between just having like a bunch of people coming up and randomly doing something under basketball hoops? It's about the message. It's about why are you doing this? Because you're wanting to inspire people to get involved or to give if they are able. And it's, you, you have to know why you're doing it when you're watching it rather than just, you know, anyone can just go on YouTube and be entertained by 
a celebrity, but but to have a message and mission tied to it seems like the difference to me. Yeah, you have to replace what's missing. You have to replace the live experience. Since you're not having that, how do you replace that? So you try to replace it with heart and intimacy because the camera is so intimate. And so to see Dionne Warwick looking you know, right at the camera and talking about our our locations in Latin America and all of our frontline workers. And to, it just, it really had an intimacy that I did not anticipate. Uh, and there was a lot of messaging you can do virtually that wouldn't make sense live on stage. You know, to have someone right. walk out, walk center stage and talk to you for 45 seconds and then walk off stage and not sing a song, but to talk about the mission feels different in a live event than when you immediately cut to them in their living room or being interviewed by a celebrity and to get across the same message. We just found ways to, um, to I think, make it intimate and stay on message. And it was a really wonderful learning experience for me, that's for sure. Yeah, exciting, exciting. Um, I wanna back up. I wanna hear the, you know, a, a, a brief history of the road to, you know, how you got to everything you're doing where you are, but how you got to, you know, the last thing you did or the Covenant House. So I know you started off as a performer, uh, a dancer, and then you started and then you started working mm -hmm. as a choreographer and then you moved into directing. And I'm just curious, was was all of that? I want to hear about it all, but I want to know specifically, like, was that all in the cards for you? Did you know this is what I want to do next and this is what I want to do next? And then what's really exciting for me is to uh, is I always knew that you had a relationship with Tommy Toon and kind of how that folded into your development as a as a theater creator as well. So I just wanted to know if you'd, you'd take us on that that journey. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because we all sort of have similar stories, right? Everyone that does this for a living, it's like the people that join the circus, you know, you all have a certain something in your DNA that makes your journey similar. But that said, for everyone that's doing it, the stories are really very different. It's mm -hmm. kind of a contradiction, isn't it? But mine is that of a, a little kid from Pittsburgh who wanted to be either Terry Bradshaw or Fred Astaire. I mean, that's I, I loved football as much as I loved uh, entertaining and dancing. And when it became clear that I wasn't really, I didn't like to be tackled, which is a real detriment for a quarterback. When you dunk, yeah. when the lineman's coming at you, the coach, you know, it just doesn't work out very good. So it looked like it was more the Fred Astaire route. And so I just took dance class like everyone else. I started tapping at nine years old. And then my at 16, I joined Summerstock. Um, Mr. John Kenley had a Summerstock called the Kenley Players. And he needed one more boy dancer to dance with Ann Miller in Anything Goes. And uh, my mom drove me to Ohio and I auditioned and he accepted me and I spent the summer doing three shows for Mr. Kenley and got my equity card. And uh, after those three years, oh, and it's at Kenley that I met Tommy Toon, who you mentioned. And wow. we, we hit it off immediately. He sort of, we felt like we were, I guess, soulmates is the best way to put it. It's interesting because later, many years later, I went to a psychic. You know, the 80s people, everyone was into psychics. And I went to a psychic when I was in Los Angeles. I think her name was Linda Walden. I don't know where that came from, but I kind of think that was her name. Anyway, I went in and she said, yeah, it was this weird thing. She goes, and I was 21 at the time, and Tommy was 42 when I went to this psychic reading. 
And she said, there's someone in your life who's very close to you, who's twice your age. And in another lifetime, you were a cowboy and they were an Indian and Tommy is part Cherokee. And you were the same age back in this other lifetime. You were both nine years old. And this is when Tommy was doing Fellini's Eight and a Half for Broadway called Nine. And she said, and you both pricked your fingers and you touched your fingers together and you became blood brothers. And so anyway, regardless of what you think about psychics and that kind of thing, I, it just kind of blew me away. But so anyway, soulmates, blood brothers is the best way to describe Tommy, my relationship. And then soon he became my, um, uh, my mentor. And after my first year at Northwestern University, he asked me to audition for the national tour of the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And I did. And so I left college. It's kind of funny, you know, my parent, um, Tommy talking to my parents about would Jeff drop out of college to tour with the whorehouse. And that was my grand, my grandparents never really did grasp what we were talking about. But um, <laughs> they said as long as I promised to return to college after the whorehouse tour, they finally um, acquiesced. Um, of course, they're still waiting for me to make good on that. But uh, so anyway, so I toured the country in that. And so I was, a, you know, a chorus boy and I loved being a chorus boy. And then, you know, as the years progress, you get, you know, I, then I did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers that took me from LA where the Whorehouse tour ended and that brought us back to Broadway. And in that show, um, I got to have a few lines and sing a few solo parts as one of the brothers and do some gymnastics. And you know how it is. You just get one line, a couple of lines, and then you work your way up. And then um, years later, when Tommy Toon was leaving my one and only to to stage the national tour of nine, um, he asked me to replace him for a couple of weeks. And so I got to marry Twiggy 16 times. And even or just as cool as that was dancing with Honey Coles. Yes. Honey Coles for 16 times. That was probably the highlight of my performing career. And that was at the St. James Theater, taking the final bow in a Tony Award winning musical. Uh, and so I said, that's the end of my performing. And I closed the door on performing. And I went out west and started making a career directing and choreographing my one and onlys all up and down the coast because people would hire me because I knew the original Broadway staging mm -hmm. and choreography. And because the cast was different and the theaters were different, that's sort of how I learned, got my directing chops. Because although you're recreating the original stuff that you knew, you had to change it and adapt it according to the physical location, your set and the actors. And that's sort of how you start, right? You're kind of cheating. You're taking someone else's work. And in this case, it was Tommy Toons and Tommy Walsh's. And you start adding your own little twists. But it's not like creating your own musical. You know, that's even how I feel about revivals. Revivals, it's, it's a little bit cheating because a different group of people did the hard work and then you're right. taking something that exists and trying to make it different or better and or better, which is easier than a blank slate. But anyway, right. so, so, so that was it. And um, after directing as much as I could on the West Coast and Tommy would come out and see everything I did, benefits. Uh, at that time, unfortunately, AIDS had just kicked in. And I was, this sounds terrible to say, I was fortunate enough to direct the first AIDS benefit uh, west of the Mississippi River with uh, Bob Hope is our host and Jay Leno. And it was at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and AIDS was still new and Michael Bennett had just passed away. And so I reunited the original cast of Chorus Line and brought in the original Dreamgirls. 
and add Tommy Toon appear, do the opening number, and then every friend of Tommy's and mine we would call to be in the show. And I really stacked the deck. And it was a big success. And so I had a career in L.A. directing benefits for a while. But anyway, Tommy would come out and see everything. Uh, after that, I did a, a thing at the Hollywood Bowl with Placido Domingo and Mary Martin. It was called Broadway at the Bowl, a big spectacular. And of course, I asked Tommy to be in it too. And he did it. Uh, it's not where you start, it's where you finish from Seesaw. And we had 100 dancers and thousands of balloons. And it was, you can imagine, right? It was the Hollywood Bowl. Wow. And it was interesting because what that told me is what worked at the Hollywood Bowl is you either had 100 people on stage or one person on stage. Both worked equally well. If you had anything in between, eh, it kind of got lost in the space. It was interesting. That taught me really about close-up on stage. I remember B. Arthur and her bare feet standing center stage singing that wonderful song from Ballroom. I think it's called 50% or I'd rather have 50% of you than all of anybody else, a Bergman tune, a beautiful tune. Anyway, the wind kicked up and here, here's Maud. In my mind, it was Maud standing center stage, but it's B. Arthur standing center stage and the wind kicked up. And the confetti from Tommy's number was blowing in the wind around her bare feet and her gown. And it was spectacular. And it was just her alone on stage, but it filled up the whole, it was just, it was pretty spectacular. But anyway, so that event happened. And Tommy, after I don't know how many years of watching me grow as a director choreographer on the West Coast, he finally said, I think you're ready for New York. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I have this new musical. We're going to tell the story of Will Rogers. And I'd like you to come and help me with the choreography. And wow. I was like, oh, cool. And he had this little cassette tape where he had Cy Coleman singing the score. You know, that's how it used to be done. Composers used to just sit at a piano. They weren't produced. They would just sit at the piano. And, you know, most composers are not known for their vocal prowess. And you'd have to learn how to hear past that. Um, and I was so young that I remember after he played me the, the cassette, I'm like, you think this can be a show? I mean, I was, I was, I had never heard that part of the process before. I had only heard cast albums. Uh huh. You know, I, I had never heard what it's like to develop a new musical just listening to a composer and a piano. And that takes years of developing that skill and being able to understand and contextualize that. And, under, right. you know, it really, it's, um, it was kind of remarkable for me. But that was the beginning then of sort of what you would call maybe the big time. And so the fact that uh, Tommy let me do most of the choreography, because on a new musical, it's very hard to direct and choreograph new musicals. Something suffers inevitably. So Tommy was busy working with Betty Comden and Adolph Green and Cy Coleman and Peter Stone on the book and the music and the lyrics. And he gave me the task of, of choreographing the show. And to my good fortune, the show was successful. Um, oh, one thing Tommy did say to me is he said, no pressure, but I want you to know that I usually win the Tony Award when I choreograph musicals. <laughs> now, now go choreograph the show. And anyway, to my good fortune, Tommy did win the Tony for um, best choreography and the show was a hit. And so simultaneous to that, the Weislers had asked Tommy Toon to direct a revival of Greece. Uh -huh. And if you know Tommy, Tommy's uh, sensibilities and Greece, you, they don't work in the same sentence. It's sort of the, Greece is sort of, the energy of Greece is the antithesis of, of Tommy Toon. And so Tommy wasn't interested in doing that, but he said to Fran and Barry Weisler, he said, but, you know, I have this protege who I think's ready, who, who could do it. And as an insurance policy, you can say Tom, the Tommy Toon production of, 
So you'll get to use my name, Tommy's name to sell tickets. And wow. if, I, if I got into trouble, he would be there as an insurance policy. And so that's how I got to go from um, working on Will Rogers with Tommy to actually directing and choreographing my first Broadway musical. But again, it was a revival, right? So other people had done the hard work. It was just up to me to work with John McDaniel and, and try to make it feel fresh and feel like a real 90s uh, musical. And I know in the past you've interviewed Hunter mm -hmm. for this show, and Hunter was our original Roger. And a really great cast with Sam Harris and Billy Porter. I mean, it was such an amazing cast. Rosie O'Donnell, obviously, we, we did it for Rosie. But anyway, and so that's how it happened. And that was my first time directing a show. And, you know, after that, I found material I loved, a score to a show called Brooklyn. And I couldn't get anyone interested in producing it. So John McDaniel and I produced it ourselves. And I'll never do that again. I learned too much. Um, I lost too many people that I love money. And that's when, you know, Jack O'Brien, I took the score to Jack O'Brien, who at the time was the artistic director of the Old Globe Theater. And I said, I want to play something for you. And he goes, is it a, a score to a new musical? I said, yes. He said, I don't want to hear it. And I said, what are you talking about? This is going to, this is a very big thing for me. He goes, Jeff, you're going to play it. I'm going to fall in love with it. And it's going to be great. And then I'm going to ask to read the book. And if you don't like the book, you're going to pretend you like the book because you got seduced by the score. And that's when I learned how important a book is to a musical and not to get seduced wow. by, by the score. But I went ahead and I did the show. And although a lot of good things came out of that show and a brilliant cast, a brilliant cast from Karen Olivo to, you know, um, uh, Eden Espinosa. I mean, it was really just a great cast, Ramona Keller. But the book wasn't good enough. And looking back, I realized that, but I was too young and, and that lesson came from Jack and I should have listened to him. But that sort of ends sort of my story of touching on all the bases from a chorus boy to choreographer, director, producer. So the, the good thing about the way I work, I think, is that I know every side of the business. So I'm very compassionate and I understand what actors and what people, I understand what everyone's going through as part of the process. Um, and I think that's helpful to make people the best they can be. And that's a director's job, right? Is you make people the best they can be. Yep. On a side note, I saw the national tour of Brooklyn at the Bushnell in Hartford with Diana DeGarmo. Oh, and she I was great. Loved it. I thought, I, I mean, I was just figuring out what, you know, Broadway and all of that was at that time. And I just remember, you know, I, I grew up and was a huge rent head. So for me, like that style of theater, I just loved. And, and it's what I always love today of, I don't need, you know, the big flashy sets and everything to create like a wonderful, intimate story about someone's journey. And gosh, some of that music is just like outrageously incredible. So well, um, one of the true stars of that production was uh, it was my introduction to uh, Tobin Ost, uh, who is a great designer. We've, we've gone on to do a lot of shows together from Bonnie and Clyde to Newsies and just many, many Deaf West shows. But um, I met Tobin on that show. And because it was about street performers, he and I together would sit and we had to use found materials that you would on the street to become the scenery, right? So if Eden was at a spotlight at singing in theory at Carnegie Hall, how do you tell a spotlight when they don't have a spotlight, you know? And Tobin would take this beautiful white piece of material and cut it in the shape of a cone. And so we would hold it up and it would look like the light projecting on her 
as if it was the spotlight. And it was just, it was a real exercise of the imagination for all of us. Unfortunately, it didn't compensate for the, the book problems, but I still have somewhere in my the heart of hearts, I'm, I fantasize about fixing that because there's a lot good there and the message is beautiful. It is, yeah. I, I love what you said about knowing every part of the business. And that's like what I'm trying to, the mission of the podcast is to try to bring people to the understanding and the importance of not only understanding your artistry and your craft, but where you fit into the picture and how you uh, knowing more about how things work and knowing about, I guess, hearing people's stories and knowing how you can use your knowledge of the business to not only get other jobs, get work, but also to create relationships, right? Like I, I think such a big part of our business and I guess every business is the relationships that you have. And I mean, especially for you, like your relationship with Tommy Toon led to so much, not not only just work, but also education. Like that's the thing. You want to get into the rooms where you're going to learn the most, right? And, and then eventually at the end of the day, the rooms that are going to also pay your bills and your rent. And, you know, that's such a big part of, of, of what we do. Well, it's such a collaborative business, you know, of the arts. Um, but I was, even as a performer, I would always sit in the wings when I wasn't on or in rehearsal and listen to the director and what he would tell the actors. And I was really always more interested in what happened on the other side of the footlights. I also wasn't good enough to maintain my performing career. You know, your career is as an actor is defined by your, physical attributes and or limitations, where as a director, you're only limited by your imagination. And so my imagination is, was much more adept and fertile than my um, ability to still kick high and Chenet. You know, that left pretty early and I wasn't a good enough actor. Actually, I was a pretty bad actor, if you want to know the truth, and a very mediocre singer. So I was really just a tap dancer with a good sense of humor. And there aren't too many parts that just need that. And enthusiastic. I had enthusiasm, humor, and could tap dance. Other than that, it, was, it wasn't it was a pretty sight. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's not true, but... <laughs> it totally is. And that's another big thing, too, is finding, like, where your talents and your life experience, like, puts you in the business. And it sometimes it takes... Sometimes people never figure it out. Sometimes, you know, you go through several different incarnations of a career before you land in where your talents are best used and, um, yeah. but huge, also where you're happiest. Well, I think a huge part of success is knowing what you don't do well, is knowing what you, what you do do well. And then you, as a director, then you surround yourself with people that fill those voids. Um, I rely very heavily on my collaborators and I've always um, subscribed to the school of the best idea wins. Mm -hmm. And that just seems pretty basic to me. So you're always going to get a better product by listening to other people, because if you put, you know, a group of people are always going to have better solutions than one dictator, mm -hmm. you know, always. So that was, that came very naturally for me, that collaboration, I think with other artists. And I love making people sort of the best they can be. I love that. I love figuring out what someone's gifts are and allowing them and put a spotlight on that and letting them shine. You know, right. As an actor, you probably appreciate a director that lets you do your thing rather than asks you to do something the way they would do it, right? That would be very frustrating, I would think. 
Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And then you, you give your thing and they say, okay, great. And they help you be the best version of, you know, those choices you were making. Yeah, it's like, exactly, exactly right. But I don't like to start with too much information because they have the script. So there's a lot right there. I'd like when actors ask what I want too early in the process, I hesitate to answer because I want something better than I'm going to be able to name. I don't want to limit their creativity to my vocabulary. That makes sense. Absolutely. And, you know, talking about this brings me to, you know, the other kind of bigger subject that I want to talk about, too, is the audition room, right? The audition rooms aren't happening right now, but we're we're seeing videotapes and whatever, but the business will return and we will all be together in rooms. And, you know, what what you kind of said kind of answers this question, you know, what what you're looking for when someone comes in, say, for like a first appointment for a role or something, you know, I guess what I'm gleaning from what you said is an actor coming in with kind of their, you know, their interpretation of the material and their choices. But I want to know maybe if you can elaborate on that or talk about what, you know, or even maybe thinking of some specific examples of, you know, when someone came in and auditioned, it's like, what made them pop? Like what makes you lean forward and say, you know, I, I want to know more or, um, you know, it, it's it's kind of a hard question, but... It's a very, very difficult question because it's all... Well, it's what I like the most about the arts. There is no right or wrong, right? There's just different takes and different opinions. No one's right or no one's wrong. In casting, it's not like... It's just your taste, right? And so I love casting and I love working with the de- designer. Those are my two favorite part of the processes. But anyway, that's, a, that's not what you asked. I look for authenticity. I think the most important thing is, and, and, and that authenticity may not be right for this particular show or a role, but you want someone who's authentic and honest, which is hard because you have to see sometimes that authenticity gets lost because of the nerves. Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of try to see, put on blinders and see through those nerves to someone's authenticity. That's the most important thing. Obviously, there's a likability that's huge. And then undeniable talent. I mean, when Sutton Foster was 17 years old, she auditioned for me for the Will Rogers Follies when we were casting the tour. And she was in walks, we're in Detroit, looking for the national tour, beautiful Ziegfeld girls. And in walks this girl with short shorts and flip flops and no makeup. You know how the women are mostly really done up. And I'm like, who is this young girl who doesn't know how to dress for an audition? And she opened her mouth and it was just undeniable. It was just like, and then she danced and it was like, who is this? So that was just star quality, right? It didn't matter how she was dressed. She didn't need makeup. She didn't need anything because she just had an authenticity. She was Sutton. She didn't try to be anyone else. She was just Sutton with raw talent. So there's that um, example. And um I know when Eden Espinosa came in for Brooklyn, John and I, since I told you earlier, we produced this and we had no money to produce this. So when we had auditions in LA, I asked my friend Mary Lou Henner if we could use her living room because it had a piano and it would be free. And so she said yes. And so we set up auditions at, at Mary Lou's house and in walks this girl, but she said, I only have a few minutes because she was doing something at Universal Studios. I think she was doing like the Spider-Man show at Universal Studios. And you know, you do a million of those a day. So she was fitting us into her schedule. So we said, okay, and we stopped everything and we let her sing. 
And both John and I looked at each other and it was just, again, undeniable. It was like, oh my God, that's Brooklyn. You know, that's her. And she was authentic. She wasn't yeah. like anyone else. She was Eden Espinosa. And we didn't, we never heard of an Eden Espinosa, but she was just so authentic. So that's what I look for. And I also look for people I want to have dinner with. I look for people I want to date. I know that sounds weird, but you're asking the audience to have a two and a half hour date with everyone on that stage. So I kind of approach it that way. I'm like, hmm, do I want to hang out with this person? And then if I really like them and I think, you know, I'm excited about working with them, once they leave the room, I pretend I have to go to the bathroom because I want to see them on the other side of the door and see if they tried to fool me or are they authentic? Is it still the same person I saw in that room or do they change? Because I don't want that. I don't want that change factor thing. Yeah. You know, that Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing. Right. And then the older I get, the more important that becomes to me because it's really about quality of my time in addition to putting on a good show. Um, I want people there that are going to be supportive and loving because there are enough talented people that you can actually make that a prerequisite. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I never, you know, I'd always thought about casting and being a nice person as, well, you got to spend your rehearsal time, you know, with that person. And, you know, you're going to be spending, if you're out of town, you're spending a lot more time, you know, ostensibly with that person. But that, you know, that's the first time I've heard, like, you're expecting the audience to hang out with that person for two and a half hours. And right. it's not just about listening to that perfect voice for two and a half hours. It's about a likability and a, and a willingness to want to get to know someone you know, through this, through this piece. Yeah, that's interesting. I think also like thinking about what you said about Eden, it goes back to what you said before too, about knowing what you're good at, knowing what your strengths are. And I think that's just being a, you know, being a human. So like Eden just knew my strengths are, are what they are. She obviously has an incredible voice, but she wasn't trying to be anything else other than, you know, what she was. I think that's big. I think sometimes I think for me and for other actors, it's like, okay, what, what do I, how can I change myself into this part rather than what parts of myself can I bring to this? Can I bring to this character? Well, that's another important quality. You really want to find people that in some way share a DNA with the character they're playing. That does a lot of the work for you. I'm just trying to think of examples, but I've been lucky that way. You cast people that they don't have to work too hard they are kind of in some way they are, that's not to say you pigeonhole them. You can be very versatile, but, you know, I can't think of a role Sutton has had where you, it didn't make sense when, oh yeah, that's Sutton or that's Eden. Or you look at Jeremy Jordan and, you know, whether he's playing a sociopath in Bonnie and Clyde or Jack Kelly, this teenage union organizer, it's so in him. He's so sort of our contemporary James D. Marlon Brando. He has mm -hmm. that tough guy thing, but with this sensitivity you don't often find with that kind of masculinity. So it's, yeah, casting is, you know, it's as, as people have said many times before, casting is everything in a show, you know, not dissimilar to a ground plan from a set point of view also determines, I think, personally, the success of a show. You can sabotage yourself or open the gates to success with, with the proper ground plan. It certainly does help go a long way in, in figuring out whether a show is, is circular or vertical or horizontal or angular or, you know, I think all that's really, really important to a show's success. It's like casting the scenery. You cast the set the way you cast actors to play the parts. 
at least for me, because I'm visual, maybe it's because of my dance background. Um, but for me, it's the visual experience. You know, you trust that the writing is there. Obviously, that's where it starts, the place, the thing. But um, after that, yeah, the actors and the, you cast the set the way you do scenery, at least I do. Yeah, the world you put them in is will inform everything. Yeah, and metaphors. What you know, I think metaphors are so important. You know, I mentioned earlier about is the show horizontal or is the show vertical? Like you know, Bonnie and Clyde clearly is a um, it's a horizontal show. It takes place in the plains of Texas, and you have to be able to personify that. And um, Newsies is the opposite. It's about kids, David slaying Goliath. So it's about this world bigger than them. So it gives them something where they can scale. And so it's a very vertical show. It's metaphors are your friend too, I think, when you're directing. I love that. I could keep listening to you talk about directing forever, but Sorry, for I, have, I tend to ramble, so I apologize. No, 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 no. I love it. I love it. And I just want to be, you know, respectful of time and, you know, the time of, you know, the episode and everything. You know, the the one last question that I've been kind of asking um, as we, as we go on in this podcast that I find to be kind of helpful is, you know, what is something about the business not necessarily the craft or the artistry, but what's something about the business that you wish you knew when you were, uh, I, I guess, you know, in your late teens, your early twenties, like even when you were 21, 22, 23, 24, that, that you feel like, man, that, that would have been helpful because I either learned it the hard way or you're learning it now, or, um, does that make sense? It does. I don't think it works that way. I think um, it's like being a first-time parent. You can't teach someone to be a parent. And when you have your first, a first-time director, it takes experience and history to hone a craft as a director as it does, I think, to be a parent. I think you're probably a better parent on your second kid and then your third kid. I think you get better at it. And so I, do, I don't think a teenager is ready to hear and process wisdom coming from someone older. I don't think it would make sense. So I don't think it would be a shortcut. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I just think there's no substitute for time. But it, I hope that didn't come off like a glib answer. I just don't think, here's what I would say now to people who are ready to hear it, but I don't think that it would make sense maybe for a teenager. It's not that I wish I knew that. It's what I've learned is a constant struggle. And that's the balance between having your skin thick enough that your heart isn't broken every day with disappointment, but yet not so thick that your heart can't be penetrated. Mm, I so love that. That's like yoga. It's like you never perfect it, but once you know it every day, you can try to be better about it. But that's yeah. something I don't think as a teenager, I would have appreciated or understood. There's a naivete that's perfect with teenagers but you learn things in your own time. For sure. And even what you said, you know, when I first asked you the question of, you know, it takes experience to really learn things. I think, you know, now it's so obvious that training programs are where everyone's going and coming out of training programs, moving to New York. And I think a lot of people think that they're fully cooked after their training program. Like I know what I need to know to, you know, become Sutton Foster or Jeremy Jordan when really it's like, your training kind of hasn't even begun because like you said, it's really just experience and doing it over and over and over. That's really going to teach you the things you need to know. 
and you, you, you never stop. You have to continue to grow. You have to, you know, for where you are in your career, right? I'm sure Sutton and all those people who are so successful, as they become successful and they have new challenges, they have to use that same skill set they had, but for different goals. And hopefully they'll grow into their new goals. So if you're lucky, you keep growing into your next dream or goal or job opportunity. Absolutely. But it's all with those same set of skills you learn as a young person. It's just you're applying them to different adventures. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. This has been such a, a you've been just a great perspective. And um, well, Robbie, I'm honored that you asked me. And I'm sorry that I didn't know when we were starting to record, or I would have been much more effusive about our first meeting um, in your show with Mel Johnson. And because uh, that's my takeaway from that experience that night, it was uh, you and Mel. That was my takeaway from that show. So it's nice to have this time with you and get to know you. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's been great about this podcast has been being able to connect with people, even though, you know, we never would have been able to, you know, connect now these days. So it's, it's been cool. And I hope we can uh, chat and do this again in the, in the new world when we are all, you know, seeing each other and, and whatnot. Great. Well, thank you. And you know, it's also a business of connections, right? As you know, so if, if any of your listeners, you know, want to reach out or continue to ask questions or talk, you know, I'd love to hear from people and people can reach me at, at the Jeff Calhoun, whether it's Twitter or Instagram Very cool. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The social media has been great with the podcast. People have been reaching out and the thing, people love to hear people's stories. That's what they say. I love that we got to hear so-and-so's stories. So that's why I always ask. And I'm, I'm grateful that you regaled us today with, with your, uh, with your trip to, to where you are now. So, uh, I will include your, um, social media handle, like in the show notes so people can find it and great that they'll reach out to you. And yeah, cause I really, I do love talking to people, especially young people and aspiring people. And, you know, cause not everyone had their, has their Tommy tune. And mm -hmm. so it's a very important, I think for those of us in a certain position to, to help the next, you know, group of people trying to have people answer their questions that actually do it for a living. Absolutely. Yeah. We talked about that as mentorship is just huge. Um, in this business. Yeah, huge. But anyway, thank you very much, Robbie. Good job. You're really good at this. You're like a natural, you should have your own like radio show. <laughs> For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!